0: Good morning. It's been a wonderful worship service to be together with this Sunday morning. Thank you, uh, praise team and and, uh, musicians for leading us in worship this morning. The the songs have been well chosen for our theme this morning. As we uh, prepare to, to enter into this scripture, I would ask you again to bow with me and let's ask the Lord's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we come to you today as people who are humbled by the great gift of salvation. We pray, Lord, that as again, as we prepare even in a few minutes to gather around your table, the Lord's table, we pray, Father, that we would again be impressed anew by the great sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that willingly, Lord, motivated by nothing else but love, gave yourself as a sacrifice for us. That you gave your body to be broken, you, you shed your blood for our sins to be covered. And so, Lord, humble us again with this great gift of salvation and what your great love for us does to each one of us, Lord, not only on the inner, on the inner man in the heart, but Lord, what it does to us in the outer man in our actions and how we live. And so, Father, as you have set an example for us, as Lord Jesus, you washed your disciples' feet and you showed radical love you have taught us to do the same and so lord challenge us today with this message and father as we go out from here having heard it i pray that you would show each one of us by your holy spirit what this looks like for each one of our lives where we apply this and how we live it out and so father we thank you for your word i ask that you would bless it give me courage lord give me boldness and clarity to speak this as you would have me i pray in jesus name amen Now, as I was preparing for this sermon, I had uh, uh, an illustration to begin the sermon with, but it actually got altered on Friday night, because on Friday night, I was fast asleep in my bed, sound asleep in that nice, uh, deep sleep of dreams that you can't remember, but you know they were good ones, and out of that beautiful place of sleep, I was awoken to the sound of loud voices. And these loud voices were happening in the driveway directly adjacent to our house where we have some new neighbors who have just moved in. And these new neighbors like to be out at about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning talking loudly in their driveway. And while it didn't just go on for five minutes, it went on for 10 minutes, it went on for half an hour, it went on so long that I finally had the phone in my hand looking at the number for the local RCMP detachment. (laughs) Has anyone ever been there before? Well, as I'm sitting there looking at that, and as you can imagine, at 3 a.m. in the morning, my mind isn't exactly in the best frame of mind, we'll put it that way. And you start to think dark thoughts, and you start to think about sticking your head out the window and yelling and doing other such things. And as I'm sitting there staring at the, the phone number for the RCMP, suddenly the sermon that I'd just been working on all week to prepare flooded through my mind Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And suddenly I was stricken with the thought, could I actually be viewing my new next-door neighbors as enemies? And am I going to treat them that way? And so I put the phone down, and I didn't dial the number, and I prayed for patience, and I prayed for wisdom. And I share that story this morning to frame for you the topic for today, which is, who are our enemies?, what category do we put people in and then when we have categorized them how do we treat them or better yet how should we treat them now our little uh our little children are very informative to us in a lot of different ways we we can learn a lot about ourselves by looking at a child's behavior you know uh, a little child we can look at and completely understand because when they are opposed or oppressed or simply don't get their way, well, they like to get even very quickly. They like to settle the score, and they also like to nurse a grudge until you've, you've very clearly been shown how displeased they are. And so in our text this morning, from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38 to 48, we find Jesus addressed this exact topic of our enemies. Who are they, and how do we treat them? Let's read the verses again, which Reuben read for us earlier, beginning in verse 38. Jesus begins addressing this topic with a crisp statement. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Then a few verses later, he makes a second statement, where he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, to both of those statements, I would suggest that the original audience of Jesus' day was thinking something along the lines of, well, duh. You're not telling us anything new here, Jesus. We know this. This is the way the world operates. Someone, someone does something to you, you get even. Of course, you, you love your neighbor, but you hate your enemy. That's the way the world operates. This isn't something new. Much closer to home, as I said before, you have only to observe the children to see this once again being enacted. I have only but to watch my two boys play together for five minutes to safely say that this is still the way the world operates. We are each born with the attitude of what's yours is mine, what's mine is mine, and if you take what's mine, I'll sock you. And then when mom and dad ask what happened, I'll blame it on the other guy. (laughs) Has anyone else identified this sort of behavior in children? (laughs) Yeah, this is sort of the way the world still operates. Now, when Jesus made this statement, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you know, hate your, hate your enemy, love your neighbor, he wasn't saying that this is the way the world should operate. He was simply stating this is the way things are. He wasn't condoning it with these statements. He was framing an argument for us to counter it with something radical, something entirely different, an alternative way. God's way, a way that is so counterintuitive to our human way of thinking that it shocks us. It shocked the original audience of Jesus' day. It shocked the Roman Empire of Paul's day. It shocked the whole of Europe in the Reformation in in Menno-Simon's day. And it is today still shocking the world in places like the war-torn Middle East of our time. This is the way of radical love. But what is radical love? Let's listen again to the words of Jesus, verse 38 and 40 to 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, as if this wasn't a lofty enough standard to live up to, Jesus continues to set the bar even higher. Verses 43 to 44. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the way of radical love. Now, the dictionary definition of radical is far-reaching, thorough, or extreme. All of those words and many more could be used to describe this teaching of Jesus. Far-reaching, thorough, or extreme. Now, in contrast to this, normal or regular love gives of itself only to those we deem worthy of it. Typically, that exclusive list begins and ends with family and close friends. But radical love takes the very best of normal love, and it freely gives it to everyone and anyone. And that inclusive list is topped by complete strangers and even one's enemies. Now, sadly, most of us have heard this particular teaching so many times that it no longer shocks us. We no longer stand with mouths agape when we hear this, love your enemies. But I want you to imagine the first people of Jesus' day who heard these words. Their mouths are agape. Their their minds are spinning, reeling at this otherworldly concept, love your enemies. Now to us, these words have become so familiar, they no longer challenge us to the very core of our being, but yet they should. For the pathway of radical love the kind of love that Jesus is speaking about here, this pathway is what each child of God is called to, Unless lest we claim to not know the way, we have only to look closely at the footsteps of Jesus, who not only taught us the way, but walked the way, and has called us to do the same to all those who would follow him. Mark my words, if we miss the pathway of radical love, then we miss it all. If we miss what Jesus is teaching here in this passage, we miss the heartbeat of the Christian faith. We could get everything else and miss this, and we miss the mark entirely. As the Apostle Paul stated so eloquently in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we can master all other Christian disciplines, but if we don't have love, we have nothing. And so what does Jesus' pathway of radical love look like? Well, first, it is the pathway of nonviolent resistance. Now, this might sound a little bit out there for a lot of us, but for some of you, it'll sound very familiar. The pathway of Jesus is the way of nonviolent resistance. Now, remember that the Jewish people of Jesus' day were living under the heel of the Roman Empire. The Roman army was unstoppable and ruthless, effective in the most despicable of ways in controlling other populations. They did this through religion, they did this through politics, but most of all they did this through the use of ruthless force. And by the time Jesus spoke these words on the northern hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, there had already been numerous uprisings by the Jewish people, revolts against the Romans, with the typical result being blood-stained streets and Jewish zealots crucified along roadways as stark warnings to anyone else who would dare oppose Roman rule. This is what happened to those who stand opposed to Rome. And so to have simply called the Romans enemies of the Jews would have been a gross understatement. Quite simply, the Jewish nation hated the Romans with every fiber of their collective being. If you wanted to ask a Jew, who is your enemy? They would have said, well, isn't it obvious? The Romans, we hate them. They are our enemies. And so they longed for the day that some great leader would rise up and lead them in a military victory over their oppressors. In fact, that's one of the primary reasons that Jesus attracted such great crowds. People wondered, could he be the one could he be the leader who will, who will rise up, galvanize the people, and finally throw off the shackles of our Roman oppressors? And so, we, in fact, we read in John chapter 6 and verse 15 that after Jesus had done one of his greatest miracles, the, the famous miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 with only a couple loaves and fishes, the people were so in awe of what Jesus had done that verse 15 tells us, that Jesus perceived that the people wanted to take him by force and make him their king. They reasoned that if he could feed 5,000, he could feed an army. What, what else could stand in the way of a man with this sort of ability? Even Jesus' own disciples believed that at some point, Jesus would deal with the Romans, take the throne of Israel, and establish God's kingdom on earth. And oh, by the way, Jesus, could we sit on the left, on the right hand of the throne? That's what James and John wanted to know, of course. They were thinking politically, earthly kingdoms. And so into this earthly, politically charged climate with the Roman enemy right before them speaking to a vast crowd that likely included Roman spies always keeping a wary eye on things. Notice that Jesus is careful not to mention the Romans by name. He didn't have to. But through the examples he gives, there is no doubt to which enemies he is referring to. The first example of nonviolent resistance he gives is this. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I wasn't sure if I was gonna do this or not, but I am going to I'm gonna ask for a volunteer. I'm gonna pick on Caden. Caden, come up to the front. We're gonna demonstrate what this looks like today. That if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, there's something that you need to understand in this. Come right up here, Caden. Right, yeah, come over on this side. This will be perfect. Okay. Now, unless you think I'm going to strike Caden, I'm going to let him strike me. How does that sound? Okay, okay. <laughs> now, just follow along with me. Now, if Caden is to strike me on the right cheek, this side right here, and he has to do it, And he's gonna do it with his his right arm. He's gonna strike me on the right cheek. There's there's two possible ways he could do that. Now, how what what would be one way if you were to strike me on the right cheek with your right arm? Backhand. Backhand, that's right. And what would the what would the other possibility be for striking me on the right cheek with your right hand? A really awkward slap. That's right. So when we're talking about someone being struck on the right cheek, we're talking about the back of the hand. Demonstrate. Oh. Oh Okay, not quite so hard, okay, okay. Man, he's really getting into character here, okay. Okay, so, but on the other hand, if he, he just struck me on this side, and I'm gonna offer up the other side, now how are you gonna strike? That's right, open hand. Okay, so, thank you, Kaden, you can go back down. Thank you very much, give him a round of applause. Now the reason I wanted you to visualize that is because there's something that's happening here, that we don't always immediately pick up on. You see, in that culture, to strike someone with the back of your hand was less about hurting the person as it was about putting them in their place. When you struck someone with the back of your hand, that was something that a master did to their slave in order to put them in line. It said, you are beneath me. Stay there. Back of your hand. It was a way of dominating, of psychological domination over someone else. And so we can safely assume that countless Jews had been struck in this manner by their Roman masters. And so for the proud Jewish man, there was no greater insult than to be struck by the back of someone's hand. It wasn't about the physical blow as much as what it said about them. You are a slave. You are beneath me. Stay there. Know your place. Do you see now why the Romans were so hated by the Jews? It wasn't just about the threat of physical violence. It's about what they said to them as a person. You are a slave. Know your place. And the natural impulse to this is to strike back, to retaliate, with seemingly the only other option being to cower and submit to your master. But Jesus gave a third alternative response. He said what? Turn the other cheek. Now in that culture, to strike someone with an open hand, as the second way that Caden struck me with the open hand, although I didn't let him because the first time he got a little aggressive, so I figured I'd hold off on the second one. But to strike someone with an open hand was not the same thing as striking someone with the back of your hand. To strike someone with an open hand was something that would be done between people of equal standing. And so what Jesus is saying is, don't use violence, but don't cower either. To turn the other cheek requires the courage to not be downcast, not to cower, not to submit like this. To turn the other cheek is to put your chin up, look your oppressor in the eye, and dare him to strike you again as an equal. Do you see the difference? You are still going to receive the violence. In fact, that attitude of perhaps unspeaking, unstriking uh, defiance might so infuriate a Roman that he'll strike you twice as hard. But the message is entirely different. Without using violence, a Jewish man could say, strike me on the other cheek. I will receive it, but strike me as an equal. And so we see here, that Jesus is giving a third way an alternative way. And now quite often this pathway of nonviolent resistance is looked upon as weak or cowardly. But nothing could be further from the truth. For it is precisely in the blood-stained pathway of our forefathers, those in the faith who have shown us the highest forms of courage through nonviolent resistance. There are countless examples of this that come from the Reformation period of the 16th century in Europe, and specifically the Anabaptist movement of which Menno Simons was one of the principal leaders from which the Mennonite Church derived its name, of which we walk in the footsteps of. In John Driver's excellent book entitled Radical Faith, he recounts how when the governing authorities finally decided that they had had enough and that they were going to exterminate this revival movement, They placed a bounty of 500 gold pieces on Menno Simon's head. 500 gold pieces in that time was quite literally a king's ransom. And despite the reward, believers were willing to die rather than betray their pastor. And even though they sought his life, Simon stressed that no one was to use violence to defend him or themselves and merely receiving Simons into one's home was sufficient cause for the death sentence. Any known associates were ruthlessly tortured and executed in horrific ways. One of them was a woman named Elizabeth Dirks. Driver writes, She was suspected of being a teacher in the Anabaptist movement, and authorities pressed her to betray Simons. Dirks responded that she hoped God's grace would keep her from becoming a traitorous. She endured torture, but resisted throughout 12 days of interrogation. Dirks was finally condemned to death and drowned in a bag. It is said that through it all, she never once cursed her oppressors, but continually prayed for their souls. My friends, Jesus' way of nonviolent resistance is not for the cowardly, it is for those whose courage flows directly from God's throne of grace. And because of Elizabeth's courage and the courage of countless others, Menno Simons was able to continue to teach and to write into his old age, his influence being used mightily by God to bring people who had been caught up in religious ritual and darkness into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the, the legacy of that is something that we and the entire evangelical church of the West today is still walking in the footsteps of. This is the the way of Jesus, the pathway of radical love through nonviolent resistance. Secondly, radical love is the way of the second mile. Jesus said, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now let's travel back again to Jesus' day. Try to imagine that you're walking along the Galilean road, minding your own business, when you round a bend and this scene unfolds before your eyes. Try to imagine this. You come around the corner, and there stands a Roman soldier barking orders to a young Jewish man. Jew, carry my pack one mile. You watch and you listen as the young man pleads with the soldier. But sir, I am on my way to work, and my business must be open for the early morning rush. I don't have time to carry your pack, and besides, I'm going in the opposite direction. In response, the soldier places a menacing hand on the sword. And he barks out, I'm only going to say this once more, Jew, carry my pack. And so with seemingly no other alternative, the young man obliges. He picks up the soldier's pack and starts trudging down the road the way he had just come. This would have been a very common sight. For just about a decade before the birth of Christ, the Roman Senate had passed a law that read, in any conquered province within the Roman Empire, Soldiers may compel able-bodied men to bear their burden one mile, but no more. Are you beginning to get more of a sense as to why the Jews hated the Romans so much? And now, though we have no record of Jesus having done this himself, as the Gospels give us very little detail of Jesus' life before he began his ministry, it is quite likely, in fact, it is even probable that at some point in his life, Jesus was compelled by a Roman soldier to carry his pack for a mile and though this is only conjecture a guess on my part I can just picture Jesus coming up on that mile marker and with a cheerful smile on his face turning to that Roman soldier and asking would you like me to carry your pack for a second mile What sort of an expression do you think would have come across that Roman soldier's face? Can't you just imagine the confusion as he's thinking, Here I am, your sworn enemy. I've already forced you to go one mile. I've ruined whatever plans you had for your day, and you're willingly going to go a second mile for me, your enemy? What effect do you suppose an action like that would have upon a Roman soldier? You see, the way of the world is the way of the first mile. It says, I will begrudgingly carry your pack one mile and not a step further, and I'm going to let you know how upset I am about this every step of the way. My, my face is going to show my displeasure. And once I get up to that mile marker, you're on your own. That is the way of the first mile. The way of the first mile says, I, I might help out a friend. But anyone else, they can just forget about it. The way of the first mile says, I was kind to that person once, and they did not return the favor, so I will never be kind to them again. I'm off the hook. As Bishop Lawson once wrote, To love your neighbor is the first mile. To love your enemy is the second mile. To bless those who bless you is the first mile. To bless those who curse you is the second mile. To do good to those who do good to you is the first mile. To do good to those who hate you is the second mile. Praying for those who pray for you is the first mile. Praying for those who despitefully use you is the second mile. My friends, the first mile is a crowded place. It's the place where the vast majority of people live their entire lives. But the second mile, on the other hand, the second mile's got elbow room. The second mile is a sparsely traveled place. But the second mile, my friends, the second mile is where Jesus lived. And it is precisely in the second mile that Jesus calls all faithful followers to live as well. Jesus' way, the way of radical love, is the way of the second mile. And thirdly, the way of radical love is the way to eternal reward. Verse 46, Jesus said, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Jesus couldn't have possibly been more clear. Doing something nice for a friend or a family member, that's what everyone should do and generally does do. But it is not the radical love that God delights in and will reward. The sort of actions That are the greatest witness of Jesus' radical love at work in our lives is when we show love towards an enemy. And Jesus indicates that those are the sorts of actions that God our Father will reward handsomely. And so this begs the question who do we consider enemies? Who are my enemies? Who are your enemies? Hopefully, you're one of those people who sits there and says, I have no enemies. And if that's you, I would say, bless you. That is wonderful. You have no enemies. And even if you're thinking that way right now, let's see if that's really true. Do we really have no enemies? Typically, there are enemies in three distinct categories. There are personal enemies, ideological enemies, and political enemies. Personal enemies are people that you know personally, of course. These are people that perhaps they've hurt you. They've wounded you physically or emotionally. They've betrayed you. They've treated you unfairly. They've robbed you, they've cheated you, or said nasty things about you. They've slandered your good name. In short, there's usually a good reason why you don't like this person. Personal enemies, have you ever encountered someone like that in your life? Of course you have, we all have, myself included. We've run into people who have done things to us that hurt us, and whether we've labeled them as enemies or not, we have treated them as such. The real question is, these people that fall into this category, how have we responded to them? Let me ask you, have you prayed for them? Have you said nice things about them in mixed company? Have you blessed them in some practical way? Have you plowed up their driveway so they can get out of their garage on a winter's day? Things like that. That is what Jesus is getting at. Blessing those who curse you. These are people in the personal enemies category. Secondly, ideological enemies. These are people you may or may not know. Who have a different set of morals and values than you. They process the world in an entirely different way. And for that reason, you just can't stand them. If you get into a, a debate on anything, you're on opposite ends of the spectrum and you just butt heads. These are ideological enemies. And then thirdly, there are political enemies. These are usually people that we don't even know. Often our government tells us who our political enemies are, and they live in faraway places like Afghanistan, Iran, and North Korea. Of course, in today's world, our enemies are less defined by borders, as evidenced by militant Islam and groups like ISIS. For us in the West, and even for us as Christians, in this political climate, it becomes incredibly easy to consider Muslim people as our enemies. Isn't that true? I find that in my own self. That as I read the stories of where Christians are being targeted simply for their faith, and they are killed and tortured in horrific ways, It is incredibly easy for me to look at the people who are doing that as my enemies. And in my heart, in my spirit, I want to treat them as my enemies. I I want people to drop bombs on them, I want them to be stopped. And then I'm confronted by Jesus' teaching. Is this the way of radical love? Is this how Jesus would have us treat our enemies? Or is there something more? Is there something deeper? That Jesus would have us do. And as we look at a world that is so divided along political and religious boundaries, as we look at a world that we can say, well, X amount of billion people are Christians and X amount of billion people are Muslims, it's very easy to draw the line in there and say, those are the two camps. Pick a side and we're going to fight it out. But Jesus says, no, there's a different way. There is another way. It is the way Of radical love. It is the way that says we will go the second mile and we will look at people who believe differently and remember that they too are created in the image of God, that they too are people that Jesus went to the cross to die for, that they too are people that he longs to welcome into his kingdom under the banner of grace and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' way of radical love challenges us to the core of our being in this day, in our time. How will we as Christians respond to those who are our enemies, whether they're personal, ideological, or political? What is the way of radical love for us? Will we go the second mile for a Muslim, even for an ISIS terrorist who would gladly cut you down? How will we respond? There's a story told of a Christian Armenian nurse who had been taken captive along with her brother by the Muslim Turks. Her brother was then executed before her very eyes by a Turkish soldier. Somehow she escaped and later became a nurse in a military hospital. And one day she was stunned to find the same man who had killed her brother had been taken captive and brought wounded to the very hospital where she worked, to the very bed that she was assigned to attend. Something within her looked down at this wounded man at her mercy and cried out, Vengeance! But then a stronger voice, a gentler voice, called out, Love him. And she nursed that man back to health. Finally, the recuperating soldier was healthy enough to recognize his nurse, and he saw who she was, and he asked her with a stunned look on his face, Why didn't you just let me die? And her answer was, Because I am a follower of him who said, Love your enemies, do good to them which hate you. And impressed with her reply, the young soldier answered, I have never heard such words before. But tell me more, I want what you have. Who will show the radical love of Jesus to our enemies if not his people? Today reports are beginning to emerge from the Middle East that there is a movement taking place that is going mostly unreported by our news media today. The world today is dominated by headlines of ISIS, of the the violent Muslim, And we believe that this is how they all are. And yet, there are increasing numbers of disillusioned Muslims in the Middle East who are seeing that right now, this is is the way that's being shown for what it is. And they're saying, this isn't the way we want. And they are turning to Christ in numbers that the world has never seen before. I read a report just recently from Voice of the Martyrs that said that there is a silent revival taking place in the Muslim community within the Middle East right now today in numbers that the world has never seen. And right now, I, if you've been paying attention to news uh, reports from this past week, the refugees that are flooding into Europe right now have been converting to Christianity at a rate the world has never before witnessed. So much so that the skeptics are saying they're just doing it to be given political asylum. They're just doing it in order to to fit in. And yet there are pastors on the ground who are saying these people are desperate for a different way. They are desperate for love instead of hate, for peace instead of violence. And there is a revival taking place. One former member of ISIS said that he had been impressed When he had been part of an execution squad going into a Christian village, he had been impressed most that though Muslims were willing to die in order to kill their enemies, Christians were willing to die in order to save their enemies. And he was so moved by their sacrifice that he joined them. And he today is a follower of Jesus Christ. My friends, this is what is happening in the world today. This is the way of radical love. This is what Jesus set out for us. And let me ask you, where did Jesus draw the limit for radical love? To whom did he say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? He said it to the Roman soldier. He said it to the very ones who had driven the nails through his hands and feet. Jesus not only taught us the way, he showed us the way. And as we come today to the communion table... And we share again in the Lord's Supper. We remember his way. And that we are called to walk in it. It is not an easy way, my friends. It is a way that requires much courage. Self-sacrifice. But we can take strength in knowing that when we follow Jesus' way, he will give us the strength. He will give us the love. He will give us the grace to endure. And to follow in his footsteps right to the very end. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, we are again humbled. We are again challenged. We are again shaken to our very core by your words, as you intended them to do. The Lord, for us to love our enemies, to pray for those who have insulted us, who have perhaps slandered us, who have hurt us, Lord, this does not come naturally to us. Oh, the exact opposite comes naturally to us, Lord. We we look for vengeance. We want to get even. We want to strike back. But, oh, Lord, give us strength. Give us grace. Give us mercy that we can be like you. That we can be those who would walk in your pathway of radical love. That to, to those who would strike us, we would not strike back. That to those who would compel us to go one mile, we would say, I will go the second. And to those who would stand opposed to us, even violently, O Lord, help us to love them sacrificially, knowing that you have died for them just as you have died for us. That you desire salvation for them just as you have desired it for me. And that, O Lord, if I will not show it to them, who will? Convince us to the core of our beings that this is the right way. This is your way. And give us the strength today to walk in, and as we come to your table, O Lord, may we remember, may we remember you, that you not only showed us the way through your words, you showed us the way through your actions. May we walk in them humbly today in your name.